and welcome to the Reading for Your Life podcast. I'm Alex, and I love to read. I want to share some of the books that have touched me with incredible lessons on living a better life. I'm not any kind of self-help guru or expert on much of anything. I'm just a guy with too many books who wants to share. On this inaugural episode, I want to share Chris Gethard's Lose Well. It's a book about taking big chances and powering through failures. I figured it was apropos for launching a podcast that no one will probably listen to. Now, the hardest thing you've ever had to do is get up off the mat. That's true for you like it's true for me, and it's true of Chris Gethard. If you're not familiar, Chris Gethard's a comedian and a legitimately very funny one. But you may just be as likely to know him from TV shows like The Office or Parks and Rec or Broad City or movies like The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, or from his often very serious and soul-exploring podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, or his very, very offbeat TV show, The Chris Gethard Show. The one thing that can be consistently said about him is that he's never been cookie-cut or anything, and that he's not afraid to evolve. If you've never listened to his podcast or seen his TV shows, I highly recommend that you go check him out right away. His work is very unusual, almost always entertaining, and unfailingly authentic. Even playing a goofy guest role in a scripted TV show, Chris Gethard puts himself out in the world. If there's an opposite to wearing a false mask as a celebrity, Chris does that. He bears his soul for the world to not only see, but then he invites you in to to lean close and poke at his soul with your finger. Like, really get in there and feel his pain. Because in addition to being an actor and a comedian and a writer... Chris Gathard has also been very public about some of his struggles. He's been very open about anxiety and depression, and he's had plenty of professional failures, some very public, like the cancellation of his long-running TV show, which we'll come back to later. And that's what Chris brings to the table in Lose Well. It's about half self-help book and half autobiography, but Chris wants to teach others how to take your lumps, dust yourself off, and get back in the game. What I appreciate the most is how authentically Chris puts his real self on the line before dispensing one iota of wisdom. This is not some multi-millionaire celebrity with a personal chef, private planes, and a fashion model girlfriend who's trying to tell you to get up and hustle more. Pretty much wherever you are, Chris has been there. There's not much more coming up from the bottom than carrying an entire TV show in the trunk of your car for years, lugging racks of equipment and props up a steep sidewalk by yourself, week after week after week to try to build a TV show in a public access studio and then every week when the show ends packing it all back up into boxes and putting it back in the car for the rest of the week. When Chris tells you to pour yourself into something you love he really knows what that means. You may and you probably will be plugging away at it for a long time and you may not get a lot of positivity or probably any money back for it at that point. You've got to do it for the love of the thing because of the burning desire to put yourself in the world and add something that the world's missing right now. And I really trust that he's coming to us honestly here. Here's a quote that I can really relate to. I never feel comfortable in a room full of fancy people. To this day, if I go to see a Broadway play, I assume every single person in their seats turns and glances at me as I enter and thinks to themselves, who let this Irish Catholic trash from North Jersey in here? That feels so real to me, and I'm betting it resonates with you too. The author Neil Gaiman has a similar story that I really love. I'm going to paraphrase it from his website and put a link to it in the show notes. So Neil Gaiman gets invited by special invitation to a gathering of important people, actors and writers and athletes, all sorts of things. By the second or third night, he's feeling a serious bout of imposter syndrome, and he ends up in the back of this room talking to a nice older gentleman about their shared first name, Neil. So now I want to quote Neil Gaiman directly here. 
the other Neil points to the hall of people and says something to the effect of, I just look at all these people and I think, what the heck am I doing here? They've made amazing things and I just went where I was sent. And I, Neil Gaiman, says, yes, but you were the first man to walk on the moon. I think that counts for something. And I felt a little bit better because if Neil Armstrong felt like an imposter, maybe everyone did. Maybe there weren't any grown-ups, only people who had worked hard and also got lucky and were slightly out of their depth. All of us doing the best job we could, which is all we can really hope for. That cuts me so deep. Guys, that's something that we all face. And hearing Chris admit that in chapter two really lets you know that you're not getting a facade for the rest of the book. There are other stories that he shares that are so real and honest that you almost can't believe that an author is putting them in print. If you're on the fence about reading the book, I highly recommend reading at least the introduction to see what I'm talking about. In the first 18 pages, we hear Chris delivering a 90-minute stand-up set to an empty field, uh, basically being berated by Mark Wahlberg, which somehow turns into Chris Gathard being cast as the lead on a Will Ferrell and Adam McKay-produced sitcom on Comedy Central, which bombs really hard. And then let me quote on my favorite one. So Chris Gethard's doing a press tour for that sitcom. It's a huge deal for him. Like, this is it. This is his big break. He's got to put on a fancy suit, a tie, and roll into this room of bored reporters. And then somehow make the show interesting. He's got to be charming. And you've got to try to give an answer that the super jaded entertainment reporters haven't heard a thousand times before so that they'll write about it. So the studio sends a car to pick Chris up from his apartment, and to really set the scene, you've got to understand how many times Chris uses the word fancy to describe things in this scene. He's got fancy clothes on. It's a fancy car pulling up outside. So let me stress this again. This is the moment when it all begins. Except, and let me quote Chris directly here, I tried to leave my apartment and the doorknob fell off in my hand. Can you imagine that? You're about to step out of the door to start your rise to the top after paying all your dues, and the doorknob comes off in your hand, trapping you in your apartment. I mean, my English teacher in high school would have made me unpack that metaphor if Shakespeare had done it. But here's Chris looking down at his future in the form of this loose, broken doorknob. I love that scene so much. But what does he do? He goes to his bedroom. He opens a window. He climbs out on the fire escape, tries to get the ladder down and can't. So he jumps, landing in a pile of trash bags. Can you feel that? That's a real moment. I've been there, everything so close, so ready, and the world just suddenly throws you a curveball. That's what this book is about. Sometimes disruptions happen. The world will not hand you what you want on a silver platter. Sometimes you've got to be willing to jump out the window and land in some trash to make it happen. Now, as I break down Chris's advice in this book, there are a couple of lessons that really resonate with me. Here's how I'd phrase them. Number one, the work isn't the sexy part. Number two, you have to do something to do anything. And number three, you can't win if you're afraid to lose. So let's get into those. The work isn't the sexy part. Chris says, success is the result of many things coming together all at once. That reminds me of another famous quote that I really love from the Roman philosopher Seneca. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. I recently read Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. We're gonna bleep that to keep it family friendly. He describes the same idea with a great metaphor. When we dream about success, we're thinking about the mountaintop. We want to be CEO of the company or lead singer in a rock band, right? We see ourselves on stage in front of the lights and the cheering fans. Whatever your dream is, it's probably the mountaintop. It's the success part. But here's the hard truth. Short of winning the lottery, you're going to have to climb the mountain to get to the mountaintop. 
And the climb isn't sexy. I don't know if you've climbed a mountain, but it's hard work. You get sweaty and thirsty. There might be bugs. There might be bears. We don't dream about the climb. We dream about the views from the top. Mark Manson relates it to his childhood dream of being in a rock band. He, he wanted fame and he wanted the glory, but the realities of working to really get good at guitar or deal with the stress of forming a band, writing and performing songs, touring, much less appealing. Think about what that would really take for a second. You're stuck in a smelly van, probably breaking down by the side of the road in the middle of nowhere sometimes. You gotta lug your own equipment in and out of dive bars to play for people who mostly aren't paying attention. Or translate it to a more modern context. You've gotta put up two videos a week on YouTube or post new songs to SoundCloud every week so you don't lose your following. And you're doing all of this for very little recognition and probably little to no money. It's what people call paying your dues. That's the long, slow slog up the mountain. And it's hard. It's miserable a lot of the time. And for most of your dreams, it's the only path that'll take you to the mountaintop. A minute ago, I said the alternative is winning the lottery. And I mean that. Maybe you're extremely lucky and your parents own a company that they're going to hand over to you. Or you inherit a ton of money. Or you're a once-in-a-generation musical or athletic talent. But I'm not. And odds are you're not either. Here are a few things more likely to happen to you than winning the lottery. Dying from being left-handed and using a right-handed device incorrectly. Becoming an astronaut. Giving birth to identical quadruplets. Winning an Oscar. Winning an Olympic gold medal. Now, none of those sound that likely, do they? Success is like that. Most of us won't be president of the United States or the next LeBron James or Steven Tyler. So if you're going to have a chance, we got to get to work. Another Chris quote that I really love the ability to do dirty work on your own behalf is the difference between being entitled and being deserving. When I was a kid, my parents made sure that I knew the value of hard work. We would have to help my dad load bricks for some home improvement project, or we had to cut the grass. And where I'm from in a small town in Alabama, we had this giant pasture out in front of our house. So it took a full day in the middle of the summer Alabama heat and humidity to cut this field. We would have to carry wood in from the wood stove. Um, we had an hour school bus ride every day. So you had to wake up early and then walk down this long dirt driveway to meet the bus. And then at the end of the day, after an hour bus ride home with no air conditioning because school bus, you had to walk the eighth of a mile or whatever back to the end of the driveway. There just wasn't alternatives to a lot of this stuff. We just learned from a very young age that some things required effort. Even in high school, but especially later when I left home and went off to college and then grad school and started my professional life, I realized I was very, very rarely going to be the smartest guy in the room. I most likely wasn't the most talented at pretty much anything, and there was always someone, and as I learned quite often, a lot of someones who were better than me. So the only option was to work harder. I'll give a great example from my professional life. We had a situation where the company I was at wasn't very data-centric yet. And there was this really core business process that we just didn't really know anything about. We knew that people came in one side of this fun sales funnel and that some people left in the other end and that's where our revenue came from. But we didn't have any clue about what advertising dollars or, or tools or processes or strategies were being effective and then what processes just didn't work at all. We frankly, we, we thought about it, we knew it was important, but we never figured out how to measure it. We didn't know the answer. Now the business answer, if you went and got an MBA, would be to go buy some analytics tool that would track things better or hire a consultant to do a bunch of research and give you an answer. But where I was in the company, none of that was gonna happen. 
So I and my team outworked the problem. We took all those people coming out of the sales funnel and we went back one by one to look at notes on their records in our system to figure out where they'd come from. It took a couple of months and it was a long and tedious process. But at the end of it, we were the only ones with the answer to probably the most important question that the company was asking. Now that didn't happen because my team was smarter than anyone else or we had extra insight that other people didn't. We just outworked the problem. We did the things that other people weren't committed enough to do. And anyone, I mean anyone, the lowest paid, least tenured, least experienced person in the company had the exact same access and could have done exactly what we did. But they didn't and we did. Chris talks about a time when he really learned that same lesson. His dad got him a job at a factory one winter break and he gets put on the factory floor working a machinery line, uh, straightening up bottles as they go down a conveyor belt. One thing leads to another and he fails at it uh, pretty significantly to the point where he almost loses a hand to a piece of factory equipment. You're starting to sense a theme to the stories that Chris shares in the book, right? But his point is that real work is hard. It's getting up early, it's backbreaking, it's dangerous. On the same part of the line that Chris worked were dozens of other workers that had done the exact same job over and over and over for years. And this part of the line was famous for being accident free. They did the hard work every single day and paid attention and kept it safe. Here's another Chris quote. Success always starts with rising before the sun, with keeping the car running and knowing that your hair will freeze. It starts with scraping the ice off your windshield. It starts with the privilege of backbreaking work. I love that last sentence, the privilege of backbreaking work. The work isn't the sexy part. When you dream, you dream of the views from the peak of the mountain. But it's the privilege of making the climb that you've got to appreciate. You have to love the work. If you don't love sitting in that smelly van and setting up your own amp for the hundredth time, you're not going to want to keep doing it. You're not going to want to wake up in the morning every day looking forward to the privilege of the backbreaking work. So you've got to find a climb that you can love where the mountaintop is going to remain out of reach. And then one last point on hard work, and one that I trust coming from Chris Gethard. When you take your first steps down the path, the work may not be very good. Let's be honest. Anything and everything new that you try is probably going to be rough around the edges. If you've never gone hiking before, the first 10 minutes on a trail could be terrible. The ground's uneven, there are spider webs across the trail, you might stumble a few times or accidentally swallow a few bugs. But here's the thing about loving the work. You're willing to keep going. You're willing to keep trying over and over and over. And as Chris is saying, stumbling and losing your footing is fine. It's part of the journey. And depending on how you look at it, maybe it's the most important part of the journey. Just go one more step, keep trying. If you really love it, if it's really you and you don't stop, as Chris says, at some point, you'll realize you're actually pretty good at what you do. Okay, number two, you have to do something to do anything. You know what's really, really scary? Doing something. I don't care what it is. Putting art in the world, talking in front of people, having an opinion, going out in public. There are so many ways that it can go wrong. I've got a decent share of social anxiety, so I've got that soundtrack going in my head. You might hear it too. What if they don't like it? What if you're wrong? What if they think it's awful or even worse, stupid? Here's what Chris says on page 143. It's not up to us to decide how the world reacts to something we make. You've got no control on how they take it. Zip. No control, period. You can only control that you put something into the world and how you react to whatever response you receive. You are 100% not able to decide or responsible for other people's reaction. 
I can think of plenty of times that I've run into something like this in the past. One that still sticks with me is a time that I wrote something that got a tiny bit of visibility on the internet. And let's just say attracted a lot of anonymous negativity. People didn't like the thing that I wrote. They didn't like the writing. They didn't like the idea behind it. They didn't like me personally for having written it. It was not a good time. It was the most consistently negative feedback I've ever received. And honestly, I put a lot of that down to the community on that specific site, which anyone who's read Twitter or YouTube comments will understand. But what really surprised me about the whole thing was how I reacted emotionally to seeing that feedback. I really wasn't bummed at all. Chris's voice was in my head. I'd done what I could do. I'd taken the chance and I'd put the thing into the world. My job was over. And even though the community clearly hated it, they were reading it. It was my most negatively reviewed thing ever, but also my most read. And here's the real kicker. While they weren't as vocal in the comments, I could also see the positive feedback piling up too. People were silently liking this piece even while the negative comments stacked up. Chris says, don't settle for proficient. Don't settle for good. Don't even aim for greatness. Aim for uniqueness. All you can do is be you. That's the full scope of your abilities. Anything else is beyond your reach. And remember, the only thing that you can control is that you put something into the world. If you're going to do it, do it your way. Find what's different about your voice and amplify it like crazy. What's the path that you're going to love that leads to your mountaintop? Find it, and then, so incredibly important, take that first step. It's scary, but without the first step, that first something, there's no climb. There's no way to improve. That brings us to Chris's advice on when to quit and give up. He spends a lot of time on this, and I love the whole thing. And let's make sure to put this out there first. There's nothing wrong with quitting. Turning around and going home is a mature decision. Maybe the climb or even that particular peak isn't appealing to you anymore. Or you've really beat your head against the wall so many times that you suddenly realize you'd be happier doing something else. That's not failure, that's maturation. Maybe years have gone by and you're in a different place in life with different values and priorities and needs. Quitting is fine. But here's what Chris says about quitting. I think you have exactly two options on when to quit. Never or at this exact moment. You can't set an artificial date in the future and give it a half effort until then. All you have is the moment you're living in. And in this moment, you're either in or you're out. If you're in, be in. Give it your all. Put yourself out there. Push yourself beyond your limits and try the unknown. Or don't. But if you don't, get out. Recognize that it's not a path that you really want to be on. You're not in love with the climb. And look for a better path for yourself. As Yoda said, do or do not, there is no try. All right, number three, you can't win if you're afraid to lose. You know who doesn't win Olympic gold medals? The people in the stands. The fourth place finisher or even the 14th place finisher has an infinitely better shot at the gold than anyone watching from the bleachers. You've got to get in the game if you want to win. If you're dreaming about the views from the mountaintop, you've got to start walking. I know that it's scary. I can't tell you the number of projects or people that I've put off because I was scared. And here's what Chris says on page 221. You should make it your lifelong goal to always be terrified. That's because being scared means you're outside of your comfort zone. There are actors and comedians and business people and politicians, you name it, that get into a comfort zone and they camp out there for the rest of their lives. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. 
if that's where they want to be or the life that they're trying to lead, that could be their mountaintop. More power to them. But some of those people are still dreaming about a mountaintop beyond where they are. I see this all the time professionally. People want more money or a better title, but they're not trying to grow in the job they have now. They've stopped walking the path. They're dreaming of the peak, but they've got a comfortable little camp set up just off the trail about halfway up the mountain. You ask any stand-up comedian about getting up in front of a crowd for the first time, almost anyone will tell you it's terrifying. But also that bombing is the best thing that you can do for the fear. Because once the crowd sends you packing without so much as a chuckle, you're at rock bottom. You literally have nowhere to go but up. I ran into this in a big way back in high school. It was the first year that our school had a soccer team and we were not great. We lost a good bit of our games by what they called the mercy rule, which means that the other team was up by 10 points. So think about that, up by 10 points in soccer in a not very competitive area. One time it happened to the first half of a soccer game. So we were down by 10 within the first 30 minutes of a 90 minute game. It just doesn't get much worse than that. Our coach sat us down and said, guess what guys, your next game is gonna be better. What he didn't say was there's no way it could be worse. We had absolutely nothing to prove. We had lost together in a very significant way. Now, I wish I could say that we came back and won the championship or something, but this was real life. We probably finished dead last in the tables for our region, but we did get better. Our last few games of the season, we stopped losing by the mercy rule. We scored a couple of points. At the end of the season, I think our very last game, we hung in there with one of our best opponents and only lost by a point or two. We were even tied 1-1 for a minute, which may not sound like much if you follow soccer, but was the world to us. At the end of the day, I'm really proud to have been on that team. Not because we brought home trophies or made it to the mountaintop, but because of the climb. I learned a lot about humility that season, and I learned a lot about team spirit. For as bad as we were, I don't think anyone quit the team during the season. We all kept showing up. We went into every game terrified and pretty sure we were going to lose, but we went in and we lost as a team. Being comfortable has never been a path for greatness. And it's not a path for a very memorable life. Try to think back to all the times when you were warm and comfortable in your bed or cozy on your couch watching Netflix. Think about comfortable, easy days in your job or at school. I bet you can't remember very many. When I think back to the days that stand out, it's the extremely hard, the weird, the frustrating, or the crazy successful days that I remember. It's going skydiving or the day that my boss walked out on a Wednesday. It's moving to a new city for grad school and heading into the unknown without friends or very many plans or a job. It's getting up in front of crowds to speak when I was scared to death and did it anyway. Chris says, your experiences add up to the life that you live. It's the unusual things, the disruptions that we focus on when we think about the best moments in our life. Make an active effort to live a life filled with those moments. Think about that for a minute. A life set up for the unusual disruptions because it's a life you'll remember and look back on with pride. I don't relish losing those soccer games so badly in high school. I don't relish losing my re-election campaign for student council in college or professional disappointments and jobs that I didn't get or projects that went horribly wrong. But I remember them and I'm happy they happened in the long run. They all taught me something, mostly how to try a little differently next time. Chris tells us, lose, lose proudly, lose often, lose well because there's no other way. If you've got a mountaintop that you want to realize, you've got to take the path. 
You've got to rise before the sun and wear the soles off your shoes from walking. You've got to take your lumps and keep going again and again and again. There are going to be setbacks. If there aren't, you're probably doing something wrong. Life is just too eager to kick us in the teeth now and again to keep us humble. And when you fail and you don't die, you suddenly realize that the worst that can happen isn't really all that bad. It makes it easier to try again the next time. Failing often can often take the sting out of failing in the first place. So be prepared to lose, but be prepared to keep going. Lose, lose well. If you like what we've talked about, I can't recommend Chris Gethard's Lose Well enough. There's a link to his website where you could purchase a copy in the show notes. And I also highly recommend checking out Chris's other work. His podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, is one of the most authentic things you'll ever hear. And his TV show, The Chris Gethard Show, is just about the most surreal punk rock comedy experience I've ever seen. I highly recommend the episode, One Man's Trash. You'll never guess what's in the dumpster. And as we said, we're going to come back to Chris Gethard's show. So I want to talk a little bit about another way that Chris loses well. The Chris Gethard Show was his baby. He started doing it live at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and then he took it to New York City Public Access. It was a labor of love that he mostly brought into the world by force of will and a cast of fans and friends that morphed into crew and support. That show was eventually picked up by the Fusion Network and then two years later moved to True TV. And if you haven't seen it and you don't believe when I say this, go look it up on YouTube and look at who his weekly guests were. It was a who's who of incredibly amazing comedians just week after week after week. As Chris wraps up Lose Well, he actually says that the Chris Gathard show was on the chopping block again, and it was possible that it could be canceled by the time the book was published. He actually wasn't far off. Lose Well was published in October of 2018. Two months before, in August, Chris had announced that the Chris Gathard show was canceled. But wait, because the story's not over. Chris loses well, remember? In the summer of 2019, it was announced that Chris was back on public access, but that the Chris Gathard show was actually dead. Instead, his new show, Chris Gathard Presents, is a chance for him to feature the best comedians from the New York scene that the rest of the world need to know about. Instead of making his show, the show he literally built from the ground up, he hands that time slot over to an up-and-coming comedian and helps them produce whatever hour-long program that they want. After losing the show with his name on it, He got up off the mat and found a way to lift up those around him. That's losing well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Reading for Your Life. Next month, I'll be sharing Sarah Wilson's First We Make the Beast Beautiful and talking a little bit about anxiety. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast or drop me a line on social media at Alex P. Acton on Instagram and Twitter. Tell me what you think of the show, how much you love Chris Gethard, or recommend a book that's taught you important lessons. Or you can keep up with future shows at Modern Polymaths on Twitter or Modern Polymaths Media on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Keep reading, and I wish you the best life imaginable.